You know, this summer we've been thinking about expecting the unexpected. And as I stood back there waiting to come out, I was reminded, my friends, that if you come to the worship service with your heart open, expecting God to touch you, speak to you, minister to you, it's going to happen. That's one thing you can expect, and it will happen. My name is David Blackburn. I'm one of the pastors here at Faith Fellowship. We're so glad that you're here in the middle of the summer. Many people are gone on vacation, but we're happy that uh, you have stuck at home and can't go on vacation. (laughs) No, that's not the case. I realize that. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God, we thank you for the blessed hope of heaven. We thank you, Lord, that someday... As we live our lives for you, there will be an eternal reward for us. But Lord, until that time, help us to be faithful. Help us to live for you. Help us to expect you to show up in our lives each and every day as we put you first. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. How many know that I get very hot up here? You know, you're such a good congregation that you allow me the opportunity to take a little drink of water once in a while, and I appreciate that. The late British author C.S. Lewis wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. Anybody ever read any of those books, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the movie was made? And I hear he's got a new movie coming out this December. He's, he's deceased, but the, the, his estate's going to bring a new movie out, so I'm looking forward to seeing that. He wrote this, Chronicles of Narnia, and many other books that millions of people had enjoyed reading them. He said this, everyone says that forgiveness is a wonderful idea until he has something, what? To forgive. In 1995, a movie was released titled Dead Man Walking. Anybody remember that movie? You're dating yourself. The movie's based on a book of the same name by a Catholic nun, Sister Helen Prasian. Sean Penn is the main actor, and he plays a man on death row for the brutal rape and murder of a teenage girl. And that man's real name was Robert Willie. Now, Debbie Morris was one of the surviving victims in the eight-day rampage of murder and rape committed by Robert Willie and his accomplice, Joseph Vaccaro. Debbie and her boyfriend... We're out late one night. They had been abducted by these two men. They took uh, them into the woods, stabbed her boyfriend, tied him to a tree, and shot him in the back of the head, left him for dead. Debbie survived her 30-hour that she was with these two men, but she was raped repeatedly by both of them. At one point, Debbie begged them to kill her and end her misery. For reasons that were never explained, they did release her. Both men were captured, tried, and convicted. Robert Willie was executed by lethal injection at Angola Prison in Louisiana. And Joseph Akar was serving three life sentences 
at Leavenworth Federal Prison in Kansas. Debbie Morris went on a few years later to write a book about her ordeal titled Forgiving the Dead Man Walking. In the book, she tells of the process that she went through in forgiving Robert Willie and Joseph Vaccaro for what they had done to her and her boyfriend, who did survive. On a Focus on the Family radio program, James Dobson asked Debbie, Have you completely forgiven Robert Willie and Joseph Vaccaro? She replied, I have. I have completely forgiven them for what they did to me. And she said, Jesus Christ makes the difference. In another interview, Debbie said, The cost of forgiveness is nothing compared to the benefits of forgiveness. She said, I feel like I found a new life through forgiveness. You know, friends, when I hear a story like this, I wonder what it would take to be able to forgive in such a way. You know, how do people do it? But then I realized that outside of God, I can't understand forgiveness at all. Whether the offense against us has been great or small, Forgiveness is a process that only God can accomplish. Forgiveness is truly beyond us. It's the work of God in and through us. And today I want us to look at another story from many years ago. And it also has forgiveness as its central theme. You have your copy of Philemon? As you came in the auditorium this morning, you should have received a copy of Philemon. Hold it up for me. You are holding, we are holding, one of the 66 books of the Bible. This brief letter was written by the Apostle Paul to a man named Philemon. And if Paul was writing today, we could have a book like this called uh, Charlie. Or PJ, or Jim, or Ron. See, Philemon was a real man, just like these guys that I've just mentioned their name. They're real men, too. Here's a Bible trivia question for you. How many books in the Bible only have one chapter? Anybody know? Want to venture a guess? How many books of the 66 books in the Bible only have one chapter like Philemon? Four. Philemon, second and third John, and the book of Jude. Philemon is right between Titus and Hebrew, and you can go through your Bible and just miss it all together. Just one page. It's been referred to as the postcard with a punch. We printed this on kind of card stock to give you that postcard feel. Less than 600 words here in the New Living Translation. And Anne Cirillo is going to come and read it to us. So follow along. The house lights are up, so I think you can read along with us.
This letter is from Paul in prison for preaching the good news about Christ Jesus and from our brother Timothy. It is written to Philemon, our much-loved co-worker, and to our sister Abphia, and to Archippus, a fellow soldier of the cross. I am also writing to the church that meets in your house. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. I always thank God when I pray for you, Philemon, because I keep hearing of your trust in the Lord Jesus and your love for all of God's people. You are generous because of your faith. And I am praying that you will really put your generosity to work. For in doing so, you will come to an understanding of all the good things we can do for Christ. I myself have gained much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because your kindness has so often refreshed the hearts of God's people. That is why I am boldly asking a favor of you. I could demand it in the name of Christ because it is the right thing for you to do. But because of our love, I prefer just to ask you. So take this as a request from your friend Paul, an old man, now in prison for the sake of Christ Jesus. My plea is that you show kindness to Onesimus. I think of him as my own son because he became a believer as the result of my ministry here in prison. Onesimus hasn't been of much use to you in the past, and now he is very useful to both of us. I am sending him back to you, and with him comes my own heart. I really wanted to keep him here with me while I am in these chains for preaching the good news, and he would have helped me on your behalf. But I didn't want to do anything without your consent, and I didn't want you to help because you were forced to do it, but because you wanted to. Perhaps you could think of it this way. Onesimus ran away for a little while so that you could have him back forever. He is no longer just a slave. He is a beloved brother, especially to me. Now he will mean much more to you, both as a slave and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, give him the same welcome you would give me if I were coming. If he has harmed you in any way or stolen anything from you, charge me for it. I, Paul, write this in my own handwriting. I will repay it. And I won't mention that you owe me your very soul. Yes, dear brother, please do this favor for for the Lord's sake. Give me this encouragement in Christ. I am confident as I write this letter that you will do what I ask and even more. Please keep a guest room ready for me, for I am hoping that God will answer your prayers and let me return to you soon. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, sends you his greetings. So do Mark, Aristarchus, Damas, and Luke, my co-workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Thank you, Ann. You know, I'm no Bible scholar, and maybe some of you are, but I, I think we could really, this morning, kind of get into Philemon and find out what he's saying. And there'd be one book of the Bible, you know, one book of the Bible, we could really say, we know this book of the Bible. So let's look at the three main characters here. Philemon. 
He was the recipient of the letter. Didn't have email back then. Had to send letters by overland. So he's going to get this letter. He's a prominent member of the church in a city called Colossae, which is in modern-day Turkey. He had been saved under Paul's ministry several years earlier in a city called Ephesus. He was wealthy enough to have a large house because in verse 2 we're told that the local church met there. Now, back then they had one church in one city. It would be like today having the Church of Alton. We wouldn't have all the denominational things that we have. Back then it was the church at Colossae, and they all got together and met in his house or the courtyard. So he had some money, he had some wealth, big enough place for them all to get together. They didn't have church buildings until the 3rd century. And we're talking about 1st century here, about 62 A.D. Well, we know something else about Philemon. He owned at least one slave. Onesimus was Philemon's slave. Onesimus was not a follower of Christ. At the time, he stole some money from his master, and he ran away to the city of Rome, about a thousand-mile journey from Colossae to Rome. He went to Rome to try to hide and blend in with other slaves who were in that large metropolitan city of about one million people. And, of course, Paul is our third main character. He wrote this letter while he was under house arrest in Rome, 24-7, guarded by Roman soldiers. And we're not told the circumstances of how Onesimus met Paul in Rome. Now, we know it wasn't by luck or chance, because friends, in God's vocabulary, those aren't even words. Now, I have a real pet peeve when followers of Christ wish each other good luck and all that stuff. Don't do it to me because I don't believe in good luck. I believe in God's divine design by his sovereign grace. So we could say it was a one in a million divine happening that Onesimus met the Apostle Paul. However it happened, we know that Paul witnessed to Onesimus, took every opportunity in his life to tell people about Jesus Christ, And in witnessing to Onesimus, he led this runaway slave to faith in Christ. Paul grew to love and appreciate him. Look at verse 13. He says, I really wanted to keep him here with me while I am in these chains for preaching the good news. And he would have helped me on your behalf. Paul wanted to keep Onesimus in Rome. So he could be an assistant to Rome, run some errands for Paul, go out and maybe get some snacks at the local 7-Eleven. Whatever he could do, he wanted to keep him as a valuable assistant. But by stealing and running away from Philemon, Onesimus had broken the Roman law and also cheated his master. So Paul knew those issues had to be dealt with, so he decided to send Onesimus back to the city of Colossae. It was a dangerous proposition for Onesimus because back then they had people who would prey upon slaves who were trying to run away. They would capture them, they would abuse them in any way they wanted and try to sell them back to their slave masters. So it was going to be too dangerous for him to make the trip alone. Paul decided to send him back with a man named Tychicus 
And we find Tychicus in the book of Colossians. And Tychicus was also going to Colossae with another letter from Paul. He was going to deliver what we now know in the Bible as the book of Colossians to the church people that met in Philemon's house. Well, maybe you're wondering, why would a faithful follower of Christ like Philemon be a slave owner? You know, slavery is one of the most repulsive things that man has ever foisted upon man. And it's anything but Christian. But we can trip over this issue if we don't keep it in the context of the first century, the cultural context. You see, slavery was widespread, and it was an accepted part of the Roman culture. It's estimated there were some 50 to 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. And in reality, many slaves enjoyed very favorable treatment under their masters and were better off than a majority of free men. They were assured housing and food and medical care and provision, while many of the free men suffered and struggled in poverty. It should be noted that the New Testament nowhere directly attacks slavery. Many Bible scholars believe that if the New Testament had taken a strong stand against slavery, that there would have been some kind of slave insurrection throughout the Roman Empire. And if that would have happened, these slaves would have been savagely suppressed, many of them killed by the Romans. And the message of the gospel would have been compromised, as it has many times throughout the centuries. The gospel would have been seen as a political statement with a revolutionary agenda. And its message of transformation of the heart through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ would have been lost. It's not to say that Christianity didn't play a big part in bringing down slavery. Because as Christianity spread, its teaching of love and forgiveness helped undermine the evils of slavery by changing. It's the only way you're going to change anything in society, my friends. It's by changing the hearts of both the slave owners and their slaves. Read what Paul wrote in Galatians. There's neither Jew or Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. Read along with me. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. The theological theme that dominates the letter to Philemon is forgiveness. Someone has said, as we forgive, we bring glory to God, for we're never more like God than when we Forgive. If that is true, then why is it so hard for me to forgive? I read where a man said there was a line in the Lord's Prayer that had made more liars out of more people than any line in human history. You want to venture a guess? 
You know what that line is? Forgive us our sins, just as we have forgiven those who have sin against us. Well, if that man's right, we can't blame Jesus Christ for making a liar out of us because we should mean what we say if we choose to pray that particular prayer. And in essence, Jesus said we really didn't have a choice about this prayer because he told us this is how we should pray. It's the only prayer in all of Scripture that Jesus gave us as a model for us to pray. Forgive us our sins just as we have forgiven those who have sinned against us. So how do you forgive someone who hurt you? Who cheated you? Nearly beat your friend to death? How do you forgive someone who lied about you? Swindled you? Walked out on you? Raped you? Stole from you? How do you forgive someone who damaged your reputation? Or did any other thing to bring pain, suffering, and sorrow into your life? You know... As you read through the book of Philemon, you will see that Paul doesn't use the word forgiveness in the entire letter. But he does present four processes in forgiving other people. First, we should revise our thinking. When we begin to think about forgiving another person, for what they've done to us, the first thing we need to do is deal with our thought life. You know, it's true that the way we think so often determines the way we feel. And if we're going to change the way we feel about a person, we need to begin by changing the way we think about them. This is what Paul was endeavoring to do when he writes to Philemon. He wants to change his thought process about Onesimus. Paul tells Philemon that Onesimus should no longer be thought of as a runaway slave who stole money from him and caused him all kinds of problems. Paul says it's time for Philemon to recognize Onesimus as a new brother in Christ. Look at verse 16. You know, I haven't seen anybody make a paper airplane and try to fly yet. I shouldn't have said that. Verse 16, he is no longer just a slave. He's a beloved brother, especially to me. Now he will mean much more to you, both as a slave and as a what? Brother in the Lord. Paul also tells Philemon that he should recognize the work God has been doing in what has happened with Onesimus. Verse 15, he says, Perhaps you could think of it this way. Onesimus ran away for a little while, so you could have him back forever. Paul's reminding Philemon that he needs to understand that God has used something considered bad, theft and and running away and abandoning his his, uh, surroundings, 
God has used that to bring about some ultimate good in all three of their lives, Paul, Onesimus, and Philemon. But more than that, he's used that situation and those circumstances to bring glory to himself. I believe that many of us would agree that when we're faced with the need to forgive someone, we have to win the battle in our minds first. I have found in my life that extending forgiveness can be the most difficult thing that I will ever do. But I know it's God's will for me to do so. There's a key in Matthew chapter 5 that I've been wrestling with lately. It will help not only me, but if you're wrestling with an unforgiveness issue, it will help you also. When we begin to think about a person that we need to forgive. Here it is. Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who hurt you. Man, don't you wish there were certain parts of the Bible that weren't there? You could just take that white out, you know. And there, well, you know, some of you do that already. So what am I talking about? I do too. Oh, Lord. If you do this, you will be true children of your Father in heaven. Here it is. The biblical key to help us with forgiveness. You and I can't hold unforgiveness against someone that we've decided spit it out to pray for. I just like pulling teeth. I'm not talking about this prayer because we're good at this. Oh, God, get them. Strike them dead. Break their kneecaps. Let them lose their job. Let them lose their house. And on and on and on. And don't act so pious and religious that you haven't played those over in your mind once or twice. I'm not talking about those kinds of prayers that we're good at praying toward those who we need to forgive. No, we're to pray something along the lines that God would do his will in their lives in order to bring about his glory. And that's about all you have to say, unless he gives you something else to pray for them. If we're going to forgive someone, we have to change how we think about them. And the best way to do that, my friends, is to see them the way God sees them, through praying for them. Number two, we have to refuse to retaliate. If at all possible, depending upon your particular circumstances, we are to try and restore the relationship with the person who's offended us in some way. Look at verse 17, what Paul writes to Philemon. He says, So if you consider me your partner, give him the same welcome you would give me if I were coming. The word translated there as welcome literally means to accept someone as part of your home life or your circle of friends. Come on, Paul. How do you accept someone after they have wronged you? 
Well, you've got to make a conscious decision to refuse to retaliate. According to the Roman law, Philemon had the right to retaliate against his runaway slave. He could have had him beaten. He could have had him branded with the letter F, which meant fugitive right there on his forehead. He could have even had him put to death. Paul asked Philemon to give Onesimus the same welcome, the same treatment that he would give Paul if Paul were to come and knock on his front door. He wanted him to choose not to retaliate. Most of us like the prospect of retaliation when we're wronged. The idea of getting even can get the best of us, just like a little guy that I read about. His mom ran into the bedroom when she heard her five-year-old son screaming to the top of his lungs. She found his two-year-old sister with a big handful of his hair, pulling as hard as she could. Anybody ever been in that situation with one of your children? So she gently takes the little girl's hand, releases her grip on her son's hair, tries to comfort him and says, you know, there, there, she didn't mean it. She doesn't know that pulling hair hurts. Well, he did his best to to compose himself and nodded his head, and then mom left the room. You know the story, don't you? (laughs) As she started down the hall, she heard the little girl scream. Rushing back into the bedroom, she says, what happened? The little boy replied, she knows now. (laughs) Well, I'm not sure this five-year-old was familiar with this verse right here that Paul wrote in Romans. Read it with me. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Where's the whiteout? That's another one of those, Paul. Not only are we to revise our thinking and refuse to retaliate, we are to restore the damage. Damage is inevitable when you've been wronged by someone. It could be physical damage. It could be emotional damage. It could be spiritual damage. It could be all three, but damage is inevitable. Look at verses 18 and 19. Paul wants to address that issue with Philemon. He says, if he has harmed you in any way or stolen anything from you, charge me for it. I, Paul, write this in my own handwriting. I will repay. And I won't mention that you owe me your very soul. What he means there is he led him to Christ and now his soul Uh, is going to have a heavenly ending instead of what it would have had. With Philemon, physical restoration was required. Paul, in chains, because of his good character and because of his friendship with Philemon, he could assure Philemon that he would stand good for anything Onesimus cost him in the way of stolen property or lost wages or days of service. 
I didn't know this before I began to work on this message, but there is an organization in Madison, Wisconsin called the International Forgiveness Institute. My wife used to be an administrator at the University of Madison. When I told her that, she said, well, that figures. They got pretty liberal school there. But this is good stuff. They define forgiveness like this. It's a response to a moral wrong. It's a turning to the good in the face of wrongdoing. Their definition also includes offering good things that contribute to the betterment of the other person. They go on to say forgiveness is the foregoing of resentment or revenge when the wrongdoer's actions deserve it and giving the gifts of mercy, generosity, and love when the wrongdoer doesn't deserve them. Does that sound a little bit like what Jesus did for us? You see, when you and I seek to restore the damage, we are motivated by those gifts of mercy, generosity, and love. It's a personal and individual thing for each of us. We may need to seek out counseling or make restitution or any number of things in this process of restoring the damage in our own lives. It could take weeks. It could take months or much longer. But friends, we need to commit to this no matter how long it takes us. See, we can never move to our fourth and final process if we try to go around, over, or under This one of restoring the damage. And finally, number four, receive the healing. The Bible doesn't tell us what actually took place between Onesimus and Philemon. Legend has it that Onesimus was later freed by Philemon and years later became the bishop of the city of Ephesus. Now, I believe there was emotional and spiritual healing for both of them. And this was able to take place as they were reunited now as brothers in Christ through the forgiveness of Jesus. And then as they were reunited, not just as master and slave, but now something higher than that, brothers in Christ, they could then give forgiveness one to another. And it flowed freely to them. Research reveals that forgiveness promotes emotional and physical health in those who've been wronged. On the other hand, holding on to forgiveness and a desire for revenge can cause serious emotional and physiological problems. You see, those people who hang on to forgive unforgiveness fail to realize the damage that they are bringing on themselves. A person put it like this. Holding on to unforgiveness is like taking poison and waiting for someone else to die. 
Are you taking some poison today? Dr. Joseph Newman of East Tennessee State University said this, Theologically speaking, forgiveness is an act of God. But in terms of health care, forgiveness could save your life. You know, as I read that, I thought, a lot of talk about health care out there, a lot of different theories and, and positions. But what would happen if we would have a national forgiveness day and all of us would determine and make an effort before God to forgive those who have wronged us. How much more that would create well-being in not only our physical bodies, but our emotional and spiritual side of us. Lewis Smedes wrote a great book entitled Forgive and Forget. He's gone on to be with the Lord just last year. Many believe it's the best book on this subject of forgiveness. I ordered five copies, along with five copies of a book called Total Forgiveness by R.T. Kendall. And those books are in the Info Center. And if you want more information on forgiveness written from a biblical Christian perspective, both of them are excellent books, you can buy those books at our cost after the service. Schmeeds wrote this, human forgiveness has been seen as a religious obligation of love that we owe to a person who has offended us. The discovery I made, said Schmeeds, was the important benefit that forgiveness is to the forgiver. He goes on to say, untold pain is brought about in the world by people's unwillingness to forgive and their corresponding passion to get even. Paul doesn't ask Philemon to free Onesimus from slavery, but to free him from the chains of anger and unforgiveness. He urges Philemon to offer grace rather than demand justice. And so, you know, does this little letter, some would think it got stuck in there. How did it get stuck in the Bible? One page, less than 600 words. Does this have any application for your life or my life today? Well, it does, friends, if there's an Onesimus in our world somewhere. It does if someone has betrayed us, offended us, or hurt us. You see, what they did to us wasn't right or fair. We didn't deserve it. And for us to demand justice is only natural, which happens to be the problem. Withholding forgiveness and seeking my justice My rights may seem natural, but it isn't spiritual. And as we consider how to respond to our Onesimus, let's consider a higher law. 
a law which sets all people, slave or non-slave, free. And this law is at work today, just as it was in the first century. The law of Christ. The law of love and forgiveness. Remember I said earlier that Paul had Tychicus accompany Onesimus back to Colossae to provide some protection for him. And I reminded you that Tychicus carried a letter from Paul in Rome to the church that met at Philemon's house. And in that letter, Paul wrote this to those first century followers of Christ. He said, God loves you and has chosen you as his own special people. So be gentle, kind, humble, meek, and patient. Put up with each other and forgive anyone who does you wrong, just as Christ has forgiven you. Love is more important than anything else. It is what ties everything completely together. See, I believe we 21st century followers of Christ can do no less than this today. That Paul asked them, we can do no less. So let's ask God to help us with our Onesimus, revise our thinking, refuse to retaliate, restore the damage, and receive the healing. Bring the lights down a little bit. Mike's going to come out. He's going to play another wonderful song. And I hope the Holy Spirit can just speak to your heart. And if you've got that person in your life, their name's not Onesimus. It could be Bob. It could be Susan. It could be Mary, Joe, John, whoever it is. I'm going to come back and pray in just a few moments. Friends, God wants us to be set free. To be set free.